Linda Burrows. And I'm Peter Mayland. And welcome to Trust Education. Trust Education is a podcast which explores the world of education in Academy Trusts. So, hello Peter and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you Linda and um, I'm really looking forward to 2024. Um, And this week um, we speak to Deborah Eyre. Deborah is founder and chair of High Performance Learning and her career is focused on helping students reach high levels of cognitive performance. Um, Because of her research and work in schools, she created the High Performance uh, Learning Organisation, or HPL, and that's focused on developing a framework and supporting schools um, to give students um, the skills uh, to become a high-performance learner. Um, Deborah's worked as an educational leader, an academic researcher, and a writer and influencer, and she's also held senior roles globally and in the UK. She's also advised governments uh, around the world around, uh, around education. So she brings a real global view um, of education to her work and she also has a relentless focus on the educational success uh, of children. Uh, we've worked with Deborah uh, for a couple of years now and we're delighted to speak to her before Christmas and here's our conversation with Deborah Eyre. Deborah, well, thank you very much for joining us uh, today. Um, it's a real pleasure uh, to talk to you uh, about HPL. It's such a core component of what we what we do as a trust. Um, so, just just before we get into the details of um, performance learning and how you've developed that uh, over time, could you just, just take us back to to your education? Um, what what school was like for you? Uh, yes, so I went to um, a girls' school, and. Um, I don't think school and I got on that well, really, because um, I was um, I was really curious about everything. I wanted to know about everything. And I went to a school where they really wanted to tell you things and then you had to take down the notes and um, and do as you were told. And so whenever I was asking these questions, um, it, I was just an irritant to the school. But um, but. I kind of felt that I just don't understand why we're doing this, that um, I was kind of cure, permanently in a position where I, I kind of felt that education was sort of happening to me, but I didn't really understand what was going what was going on, why that was happening. And I particularly, one of the things I feel really strongly about was that kind of, in terms of my sense of self-identity, we were, we were ranked by how well you did in class, and I was number 12. And... Um, I I used to kind of daydream and contemplate how I'd get to number 11 and I decided that somebody would have to leave. So really what the school was conveying to me was, you know, you're kind of middle ranking and I kind of felt there wasn't any way out of that. So all in all, um, I didn't really come out of school feeling that positive about education. But once I'd gone on beyond that into higher education, suddenly all the things that I was really keen on, like, you know, kind of finding things out, were highly valued. And it was that was that was really quite a big change for me. It was like, I'm not doing it all wrong now. Actually, the things I do are what people want to see. And then, so <coughs> I think some of that did shape kind of how I think, um, you know, I've, I feel that, you know, education needs to be engaging. It's kind of top and bottom of what that left me with but also that education is really powerful in terms of as a young person you pick up what you think you are partly from education and that you know that can be 
I mean, I'm sure if you'd asked my school, they wouldn't have intended for me to kind of have the view of myself that I got. But that is what I got as a result of going. So um, so I think, you know, so in, in other words, I think, you know, schools play a big, they're very influential in a child's life. What school says goes. Yeah, yeah, I certainly agree with that. Yeah. And, uh, and and obviously, you when you went on to higher education, um, that that seems to serve you very well, and you've you've stayed in academia for quite a while. But obviously, you've become a professor. What what kind of motivated you to really kind of focus on um, research around how we learn? So, um, so first of all, I became a teacher, and as soon as I became a teacher, I was just really fascinated by why some people find it so much easier to learn than others. And um, everybody who's ever been a teacher will know that, you know, you can kind of you can work with with this, with two different two children in, in the same way and have a very different impact on them. And I was kind of I was just really, really interested in it. And so I started as a teacher to be really interested in um, how do the most successful learners learn and what do they do? And, and by chance, um, I was then approached and offered a, a, a job in I was teaching in primary at the time and um, I was offered a job to be in charge of the most able students and I said you know I don't really know anything about that and the, this was a very forward-looking head I think and she said well neither does anybody else but you know we think that they're ill-served and we want someone to look at what we should do so I kind of um, I was never very interested in who's in the group and who's not, although it was obvious from very early on that they were very, very different. So, you know, the idea that there was one diet for everybody was not going to work. But I was really interested in what they did. And I suppose that sort of started a whole career for me because I was in school. Then I was in the local authority um, and at the same at the same sort in the same kind of way, the local authority had this kind of view that the most able students were kind of a one off who was, you know, I've got one in my class or in my school. And can you bring a shed load of books in your boot that might suit them? And I kind of said, no, this is all about, you know, the ordinary diet curriculum, what, what you do with your curriculum to make it more more challenging and more engaging. So then. I was kind of working across all our subject teams to look at that. And um, and I think our approach was considered by other local authorities to be quite novel. So then I found myself kind of being asked to go and work with other local authorities in various ways, which kind of culminated in me making the switch from working for my local authority into the university sector. And um, because I wanted more time to focus on it and also to um, um I was quite passionate about helping beginning teachers to understand all of this from the get go. So that's how I came into academia. It was sort of the desire to kind of take everything I'd learned in the practical sense and have more time to explore the things that I felt were really important. And I think I was just really fortunate that um, that I was able to do that the way, you know, I think that's about what happens with careers is there's a certain amount of luck in it so sometimes you're just in the right place at the right time sometimes you're not but in that particular case um it's the cards fell right for me and that took me into academia where um i, I just felt very at home i liked it and, and i think it's fascinating that um that kind of link with with curriculum um because certainly you think well certainly i associate um your work and have performance learning very much around um, the student behaviours and their their attitudes to their own learning as well as 
um, staff belief in, in what they can achieve. Um, and we've been having uh, this kind of conversations about how we can improve our curriculum, make it more challenging to really um, give them something to aspire to and, and um, make sure that the curriculum is as high performing as we want the children to be. So I think it's fascinating that you kind of started at that point of thinking, how can how can the curriculum best serve the children that, that you were teaching? Mm. Yeah, so, uh, so I think, you know, I really believe that um, subject knowledge is fundamentally um, the building blocks. But I think what we're talking about is bringing a kind of interdisciplinary approach to subject knowledge. So it's not sitting separately from from subject knowledge. It's bringing that approach to subject knowledge to enable students to do better. And in fact, these the um, the the advanced cognitive performance characteristics, the ACPs, um, they're they're a way in which you can get greater demand into your curriculum. And and actually, quite a lot of them are evident in sort of domain specific skills anyway it's just that you've got you know in a particular subject area that certain of them have greater priority but but the kind of you know sometimes I think people in terms of H HPL I didn't start HPL from the perspective of um, a sort of skills program that sits separately from curriculum but rather more a way in which you can underpin your curriculum with these more advanced skills that we know make the difference in terms of success. So, you know, basically that these are the things that the people who are most successful actually do and they do them routinely and, and they almost on autopilot with them that they don't even have to think about it. And so, you know, really part of high performance learning is just allowing other people to create those same habits which comes so naturally to some, but you can teach to others is the kind of premise behind kind of what we were looking at. So I think the kind of the time I spent, you know, quite a significant amount of my time in um, the university sector. And um, I had a, I was awarded a chair professorship for the work that I'd done in um, how the how the most advanced learners think and learn. I think that just really allowed me not only to do my own research, but also both both you know personal research and also working with schools i've always been really interested in continuing to work with schools but also to be part of a big community internationally of people who are interested in the same things or adjacent to joining things so you know you kind of over over time you get to know other people's research inside out and um and what they're looking at and what's interesting them and how they kind of take it further and that kind of influences what you look at as well but i guess i've always um I've always thought of myself in terms of um, academia as being a practical academic because I've always liked to think about things, but from the perspective of what you do with them. And not everybody does. Some people get the satisfaction from just knowing and understanding it. But I've always sort of thought in terms of thinking about learning that, you know, I'm kind of interested in what would I have done with that as a teacher? And also, is it possible to do? So if it's not, if I couldn't have done it, I'm kind of working on the premises. Probably most people probably couldn't either. So, um, so you know, sometimes because in academia it's kind of tempting to come up with kind of solutions which are, which work brilliantly for the individual, but you just can't use in in a classroom because it's just too complex. So, the kind of um, thinking about you know, kind of could I do it? Would it be practical? I hope that it's a part of my kind of um, certainly think it is kind of part of my background is I've never kind of forgotten that 
feeling of what's it like to teach. And and that's why I like to keep close to teachers. You know, it's always my kind of it's always my kind of first love that um, how does that work at the classroom level? And so when I was researching, what I was kind of trying to do is take the information and bridge that gap between research and practice. But I have, you know, I'm not kind of making any great claims. It comes quite naturally to, to me to want to do that. So it, I would probably never have been very happy if I couldn't, because in my life I've had periods where I've been kind of researching and studying. And then I've had periods where I've been taking a role where I'm actually on the ground doing it in practice. And then I've sometimes gone back to to doing a bit more study because it's like, oh, yeah, I've worked that out, saw how that worked. Now I need to know a bit more about that bit. And I think that's the thing is if you're if you're a researcher, it's a frame of mind. It's not it's not really a job as such, although you might have the job title because it's just that you're just interested in sort of investigating things further. And that just plays to my kind of you know natural curiosity. I guess that's sort of where I sort of started. It's like you think you're going to find out about something. And then as soon as you start to peel that onion, you find there's a whole lot more that you never dreamed was, you know, there's been there's been hundreds of people in the world researching on something you didn't even know existed. And that takes you off on a whole new train. So it's it's kind of I don't think you ever get to the end. Um, it, it's just that you kind of probably know more than most is all you get to. Um, and, I, and but that in itself is quite rewarding. It's kind of the idea of what would I look at next kind of thing. Absolutely. So, so we, should, we should probably say what the uh, yeah. what the ACPs and also which you've mentioned and the the VAAs, the values, attitudes and, and attributes are, um, and 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 also then maybe following that up with how would you how would you want to see teachers using those? Mm. So, firstly, uh, you know the the philosophy that sits behind HPL is this um, philosophy that everyone can. And so before kind of before I want teachers to use the ACPs and VAAs, I want them to be in that mindset of believing that everyone is theoretically capable of, of doing well, because um, it was a, over my kind of um, career when I started out looking at, at all of this. I think everybody thought that there was a sort of subset of the population who were the most able or the gifted and they were somehow different from the rest of us. And so there was a kind of task of deciding who was and who wasn't in the group. But over my kind of over the lifespan of my career, I think a couple of things emerged that were really terribly important. Um, and one was that that kind of identification was kind of inaccurate because really there wasn't a subset of the population. It's just that some people had managed to make greater progress than others for some quite complex reasons. And um, but also that that by creating that kind of cohort, what you finish up is denying other people the chance to do as well, because you're giving a proportion of students access to really advanced opportunities and other people don't get those opportunities. So what the research shows is it's like you kind of what you've done is kind of pulled up the ladder on those on those on those advanced um, opportunities. So other people, they can never get back. You kind of ration success. So I think it it's the research evidence from genetic psychology and neuroscience is so compelling about particularly from neuroscience about neuroplasticity that that really it's really damaging for teachers to believe that um, that some people are capable and some people are not or less so 
because we know from research that goes back to kind of Rosenthal's Pygmalion in the classroom in the 60s, that what a teacher believes is what they get. So yeah. if you're if if as a teacher you're believing that everybody might is capable of doing well, whilst you might not realise that, you know, in the kind of in the fullest form, you've got a fighting chance. Whereas if you've already made the decision that only a proportion of them are capable of doing well, this is these are the these are the most capable ones, the rest of them, you know, they're going to and you know, in the in the there was a period, wasn't there, where differentiation was very much in that sort of mode where the top group got one lot of work and the middle group got a different lot and then the others got another lot again. And that's just a self-fulfilling prophecy. So before so this is a long answer to your question, Peter. I apologise for that. But before you get into how you use the ACPs and the BAAs, you need to believe that you could use these to build performance in people. Because what they're actually doing is enabling individuals to improve their performance, to perform better. So, so the ACPs themselves are what um, research tells us are the ways of thinking that advanced thinkers use. So, um, so what you're trying to do with them, and um, there, are, there are 20 of them in total, um, but split into quite obvious groups. What you're doing with them is you're kind of saying this is a sort of toolkit for how to look at any problem. Um, that you encounter in your lessons, in your learning. And some of them are, you know, kind of really obvious kinds of things like, you know, I don't know, metacognition or let's take self-regulation. That It's not to say that teachers have never introduced the idea of self-regulation, like, you know, what do you need to do better next time? You know, all teachers have done that. But it's naming it that makes a big difference with your students, because if you say to them, you know, OK, I want you to tell me what do you need to improve on next time? That's called self-regulation. Then the next time around, what they when you when you say to them, so we finish that piece of work now, what do you need to do? I need to self-regulate to think about what I'm going to do better next time. Or even in the middle of a lesson, you know, as a teacher, you can just say, OK, stop everybody. So I want I'm going to pick on a few people to ask them how you approach this particular problem. And then when we've heard from them, you can make your minds up about whether you want to make any changes to what you're doing. What do we call that? Self-regulation. So those those sorts of things, what we're doing is proactively bringing them into a student's toolkit, because what the people who have traditionally been the high performers do naturally is to draw upon them. So they already do that. So what you're trying to do is to get everybody else to recognise it so that they know when to deploy it and what to use. And and I think, you know, that that whole kind of process means that you've got a language which enables the teacher to make the demands they want to make of students and also for students themselves to kind of know. I know one of the things I need to do is this. You know, so connection finding, finding connections is a good thing. Once it's been explained to you why that's really helpful and it, it helps you to avoid having to do so much revision because you've got a schema in your brain, which is which is connecting all these pieces together. So once you know that, then you start to look for connections. And, and what you really want from your from your students in class is that they're telling the teacher, oh, that's that's a bit like when we did that last term. It's a bit 
So they're pointing out the connections because ultimately the, the ACPs are all about thinking in an advanced way. So the teacher's trying to encourage that kind of behavior, reward that kind, name that kind of behavior, reward that kind of behavior. The teacher is winning when the students start talking about that behavior because then it's in their, they've, they've taken it into their toolkit. And the same with the values, attitudes and attributes. And it, it kind of frustrates me this, that sometimes when I'm listening, you know, kind of on the news or something, we have yet another kind of, well, you know, it's academics versus vocational kind of debate, which is a completely false dichotomy. But I think um, the because in terms of if you're going to be successful as a learner, you have got to have the values, attitudes and attributes that you bring to learning that enable that success. So something like being open minded. Which is an attitude. If you're. I mean, we all want we all want all our, our children and young people to be open minded because that makes them nicer people to be with and better citizens and all of that kind of thing. But it's also really important when you're learning, because if you can, if when you're faced with a question. And a good example of this is if you're faced with a question in an exam and it doesn't, especially in secondary, it doesn't come up in the form that you'd expected. If you're not open minded then you just kind of think, oh, we didn't learn it that way. I'm flawed. I don't know what to do. I'm really stuck. Whereas what you really want is that kind of, oh, that's interesting. Panic, panic. But on the other hand, it's a bit like something else. And you want them to have that kind of confidence and the open mindedness that enables them to say, so if it's a bit like that, maybe if I approach it that way, I might that might be right. Because what we know from the research into the, the most successful learners is that is just what they do. They take an educated guess. So they kind of um, they just think, oh, I know that's a bit like that. I'll try that. That's as good as anything. And and actually, so the, the and, and similarly, you know, kind of the hardworking kind of um, VAA. I mean, nobody's going to get far without hard work. And. And we actually know that the sort of deliberate practice of all these things that we're talking about is what we, what helps you to get to cognitive, higher cognitive performance. So whilst some people need an awful lot more practice in, in any of these than others, nonetheless, everybody can make progress. And what's kind of curious about, um, about some of them is that some of you your students that you don't necessarily traditionally think of as being amongst your most your highest performers can be very high performers on certain of them. So, for example, in empathy. Some people who are the high performers in empathy may not be doing so well on some of the of some of the more academic ACPs, but they are right, you know, kind of high up the scale on empathy. But if you if you have limited empathy, then you really struggle cognitively because, for example, I don't know, in history, um, sometimes you have to look at somebody else's point of view and sometimes their point of view is quite unpalatable and you've still got to, you know, kind of be able to put yourself in their shoes to think about it. And if you can't, then you're really limiting yourself. So those, so I don't think the VAAs are soft skills. I think they're really fundamental skills in terms of both creating the kind of rounded individual that you want at coming out of a school and 
and an individual that can do well beyond school in whatever they choose to do. And but it's also they're not going to be cognitively successful without them. It's no good being, you know, the kind of the, the sort of um, stereotypical kind of brains on legs. It's they the research indicates they do not do well in adult life. If you if you just can't relate to other people, can't work collaboratively, all those kinds of things, you do not do well. Nobel Prize winners are not individuals in a shed at the bottom of the garden doing something on their own. They're people who've worked collaboratively with other people. And it's it's almost chance that they're the ones who take that particular step because it could have been other people in their group that they've worked with. Because that's how we, you know, we kind of get better is everybody works together and then ultimately somebody in the group takes a next step. And sometimes it turns out to be a very significant one, more often just a little one. Yeah, yeah. I um, just going about you mentioned about teacher expertise earlier. So if you think about, you know, think about a developing an education system um, that you know produces high performing students. So, you know, you have you have to have the environment that that's right. So the classroom management in place um, and then the belief, you know, that that all students can. Um, but I'm, I'm just interested um, what your thoughts on what schools can do to support the, the teachers um, and their, you know, their expertise in the subject, because they could have a belief. But, you know, um, you know I've been teaching, well, 28 years now and you know, you've got to be one step ahead of, you know, mm -hmm. of students um, in order to you know, to teach to the top, you know, your expertise. So what would you, what would you, what advice would you give to, uh, to schools, Deborah, to, to support them uh, with, with staff, uh, with I teachers? Think, with high yeah. it's, um, it's really good. And I'm, I'm, I'm really good. First of all, to say, I'm, I was really pleased to hear you, um, Linda, mention classroom management, because mm -hmm. um, I think it's underplayed. Oh. Um, I don't think classroom management is just behaviour management. Mm -hmm. It's about, you know how you how you create that learning context in the classroom to enable these things to happen and so i think when you're talking about trying to get to high levels of performance sometimes from a teaching point of view you can feel a bit nervous yourself about you know i'm not necessarily that confident about this and i, I say this particularly in primary where you're expected to be a generalist so you're expected to be you expected to be good in um to a certain level in all subjects, which is a hard ask. And when I've done research into that, I've always found, as have others, that um, when it comes to kind of creating challenge in the classroom, um, most primary teachers um, are better at creating it in the areas where they feel most comfortable themselves. And they draw more strongly on commercially produced resources in the areas where they don't feel so strong. Yeah. So, and that's that's OK. And I think it's partly about kind of, um, in terms of creating that level of challenge, firstly, sort of being from the position of having a class that you work with and they respect you is about saying that we're working on this together and that sometimes, you know, I may not know the answer. Mm. So um, it doesn't mean that you say that all the time, because if, if all the time you say, well, let's learn about it together, they kind of think, well, you know, they don't know any more than I do. <laughs> But you can afford to do it sometimes. And sometimes I think teachers are, are a bit they don't feel comfortable doing that. Mm -hmm. But I think the um, but when you do it, it works so well. And I kind of um, 
you know, a couple of techniques from really quite a long time ago for me with, in terms of um, creating challenge in the classroom that I've observed two different teachers do, um, both of whom were teaching quite young children. So the first one was that the teacher sort of, she said to the group, she, she just started the lesson by saying, goodness me, she said, I don't know what was happening on Sunday. I must have been feeling, I don't know, very happy because I planned today's lesson. And now that I look at it, I think it's just a bit hard. And, um, and she said, so maybe, maybe we shouldn't do it. And they all said, oh, no, no, let's do it. And she said, well, she said, it is really hard. And they're like, no, no. And she said, so anyway, if you want to do it, we'll give it a go. But if you don't, if you know, if you find it hard and we don't manage to do it, it's OK. It was hard. And so all she was doing was a bit of theatre, wasn't it? She was building in a kind of safety net that says, it's fine. You know, we're going to really challenge you, take you out of your comfort zone, do all that risk taking, all those kinds of things we talk about in education. But she'd set it up in such a way that it was safe to do that. And I think, you know, that's one of the techniques is to create that kind of that safe environment. Um, and also from the point of view of, you know, kind of teaching, you've already kind of decided that, you know, you're OK with the fact that it might not go quite according to the plan. And mm. I think that's another thing that we, you know, as teachers, sometimes we feel, you know, we've made the plan. It must work according to the plan. Um, and sometimes <laughs> I think we just have to be um, realistic about saying the best lessons don't always go quite according to the plan. Yeah. And that's a good thing. Yeah. And then the second example I give you is um, which I observed, which was ages ago, was that um, it was in a, it was in a, a key stage one and um, they were doing um, what does and does not conduct electricity and um, they got certain things that they had to say whether they did or not and uh, um, one of them was a piece of wood and um, this boy said to the teacher so he said so if wood doesn't conduct electricity how come trees get struck by lightning <laughs> and there was this sort of Pause. And I think that's a fork in the road for that teacher because it would have been all too easy to say we're not we're not doing that today and then just you know kind of move on. But you know she was all credit to her. She said, "Well, that's a really interesting question. I don't think I know the answer to that. So, um, how do you think we might find out?" Right. But there was a bit of a discussion about that, and they eventually decided they might ask the electricity board. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so she. She, she got the electricity board to come in and explain it. And, yeah. and what I think is really interesting about that is that those those children will never forget that. But also they will probably have um, understood conductivity to a far higher level because because of that question and because she kind of responded to it. So I think what I'm really saying is from a teaching point of view, if you want to take teachers to uh, you want to take your children and young people to high levels of performance. Sometimes you'll feel confident that you're in an area that you feel utterly comfortable with and where you can take them there yourself. But if you don't, rather than sort of just kind of putting a, a, a lid on it because you feel uncomfortable, you just need to use some different techniques whereby, you know, I mean, she now she got the electricity board in, but you could just as easily say, well, what can we find out on Google? Yeah. You know. Let's let's explore it together. So it's kind of like 
don't be afraid and don't think you will ever know everything because you won't. And the, the kind of and that's OK. I think it's just a permission as a teacher to be a bit to be a bit humble in front of your students. I actually think you gain a lot of brownie points that way because um, yeah. because they see you as human. You know, this is a person who didn't know that. That's interesting. So I don't think you, I don't think you lose face. And I think I think from the point of view of, of you know, kind of being a good and confident teacher, you know, I mean, I'm I'm a specialist in my own particular area. I'm not a specialist in anything, everything, by any stretch of the imagination. But even in my own area, I get asked questions I don't know the answer to. And that's fine. You know, I don't think we should worry about that. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose, I suppose it comes back to that kind of confidence that you are teaching the children rather than having to deliver a curriculum and get kind of get through the lesson doesn't it yeah and I think I'm thinking you know thinking about the schools that you know um I know have you know adopted um HPL and we're going to want to talk Mm. about um you know international schools and I'm aware that a lot of them are all through and I know that you know our schools you know work together and I think it's utilizing the experts in the secondary um sector as well i know we do that be quite interesting you know um to see i'm sure that's what they do in the in the international schools that you know have adopted the hpl um you want to talk about the the um yeah international schools yeah uh, i mean so hpl is a fantastic network of schools now isn't it we've got a number of schools that, that have adopted um this way of teaching and um have kind of really um, taught explicitly the ACPs and the VAAs um, to, to the children who attend the schools and uh, adapting their curriculum uh, around that. Um, and it, it seems it seems to us that it's, it's probably taken off more in international schools than it has in UK schools at the moment. And if, is, there, is there a reason for that? Is that because of um, that there's kind of a greater belief in in the capacity for children to achieve, all children to achieve uh, high performance in international schools and in UK schools or or is it just serendipity? Um, I think it's partly that Peter I think um, I mean firstly to say that you know in terms of um, continuity across from um, they're often, they, you're right they're often through schools in terms of continuity sometimes they have really good continuity and sometimes they don't sometimes you know um, they're not making the best possible use of it it's a mixed bag um, I think that um, there's more of an emphasis in the international school sector on the idea that schooling is for life, not just for school. Yeah. So, um, so for example, I was at a conference recently out in Kuala Lumpur, and um, the two topics that, that um, people were most interested in in the talks, one was about the, the use of AI in schools, Mm-hmm. And the other was about how you meet the UN sustainability goals without creating panic amongst your children, especially young children. Mm-hmm. And that that kind of um, kind of big picture thinking, I don't hear as much as I'd like to hear in England. We seem to be very sort of um, a bit myopic in sort of, you know, the things that we're focusing on. So it doesn't mean that international schools are not concerned about um, um, attendance and behaviour and other other those kinds of things which are you know fundamentally really important and they're part of having the preconditions in order to learn well 
but but they're also kind of exciting their students about thinking about how they're going to be the change makers of tomorrow and how do we create how do we educate in such a way that we create the change makers of tomorrow and I think one of the reasons why that doesn't happen so much in England is because the it's not just about the Ofsted agenda, although that's part of it, but some of the international schools are regulated. In fact, in the Middle East, in Dubai, for example, they're inspected every year. So it's not that they don't have regulation sitting behind them, but rather more that the kind of both the Department for Education and, and Ofsted together sort of set an agenda in England that is um, is very particular at any given time. And it and it changes. Um, with quite regular frequency, but it means that schools are always trying to keep up with whatever it is that, that, that's at the forefront of the agenda for Ofsted and the department, which means that they, they don't have as much capacity to think about what is it we'd really like to do. So schools like yourself in, in, in the Albany Trust, I mean, I think and the other schools that we have in England that are HPL schools, one of the things that characterises them is they are thinking more broadly mm. about what they want to do in education and, and what they want to do for their students. And that doesn't mean that they're ignoring anything that the Department for Education or Ofsted are saying. It's just that they're not just being led by it yeah. all of the time. So I think it's harder to take that stance in England because because you've got kind of noise around it, um, whereas in in the international sector you've got you've simply got more autonomy. So I mean it is so the international schools they do have regulation, they do have extremely demanding parents in terms of if they don't get the results in um, in the public exams and um, there is or indeed not just in the public exams. Um, Parents are fickle in the international school sector. If they don't like what they see, they move schools. Mm -hmm. So they move quite frequently. So there's a sort of parent demand, which is quite a big driver. But nonetheless, the kind of the opportunity to create your own school vision, live your own school vision and feel that you can concentrate on it fully without having to continually just ensure that you're you're not out of line with with what's coming down the track from um, from from the DfE or and or Ofsted, um, I think is is more difficult in England. And you know, I sat on Amanda Spielman's um, uh, advisory group that re, that changed the uh, Ofsted framework. And the intention behind that is a really good intention, which is that you could have your own personal vision, and you should be able to talk about how that's realised and prove that it is working in practice. But it's just the nature of um, the way that the system has worked over a long period of time, that everybody's kind of looking to say, what do Ofsted really want? Yeah. So it's like, you know, there's some there's something there they want and I've got to make sure they see it. So I think there's a kind of, um, and I think that's, that. so there's a sort of, there's a lot of time, energy and effort spent on trying to guess what's needed as opposed to, um, you know, really good schools are, they're self-improving. They're kind of they know where they want to go. They're reflecting on where they are and you know quite harsh judgments of themselves and looking at sort of how to get better. So 
I think um, I'm hoping that um, that what we're going, what's going to happen in England is really that um, that we're coming out of what I think is an over dependence on curriculum. So I like curriculum, but I think it's over dependence on it, as if um, curriculum solves everything. Um, it solves some things, doesn't solve everything, and I'm hoping we're coming out of this particular pendulum swing. And I hope we don't go back to we don't need curriculum and um, and we only need skills based approaches. What we need is the fusing of the two. But, yeah. but I'd say it was put to me recently, actually, um, by somebody that probably the English education system is less ready for HPL than it was 10 years ago. Um, but I'm hoping we're coming out the other side of that. That's all I can say. <laughs> I think I think it's the, the bravest of the heads that, you know, that go down this line, isn't it? That, yeah. you know, obviously they you know value the importance of, you know, of study inspections. Um, but it's about, you know, really having that clear vision, sharing that with everybody, the community, you know, um, you know, in school. Um, and it's about, you know, going forth, isn't it? And being brave um, with what you believe in, you know, um, yeah, I think you've I think you've answered um, one of the questions we were looking at about the, you know, there's been, you know, a number of papers going about, you know, about um, I know SSAT have just written one um, named Beyond Manifestos, looking at, you know, the potential of a new government and, you know, asking the question, what does education need next? You've touched on that. Is there anything else that you, you'd like to add, Deborah, um, about that? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um... I think one of the one of the challenges for us in England is that we're not sort of short of the kind of the, the think tank policy paper. We get a lot of them. Um, but when it gets translated into actual policy, sometimes it comes out quite kind of crude at the other end. So, you know, it can the original ideas can be quite strong but um but then you get down to you know you must do six of these and half, and 10 of those and i think the kind of challenge in terms of what we really need to do is to go back to this question of you know what are we trying to achieve through our education system with our students to make them fit for the life ahead and yeah. and not be at all kind of worried about things like you know as i say when i was um um, in Southeast Asia, we were talking about AI. It was sort of from the premise of, um, well, it's already there, so we might as well, you know, kind of not pretend it's not. So I've stopped giving my people homework to do. And I, uh, well, I tell them they can do their homework on Chat uh, GPT, um, <laughs> and um, and then we'll have a look at whether it gives them, a, you know, what what it produces, and you know whether we think it's a valid answer, rather than don't use it because they're inevitably going to use it so the kind of how do we how do we kind of play with it but I think the kind of um I was I'm always reminded of when my son who's now um very much an adult um when he was in school they learned how to do mail merge on the computer and I remember him saying at the time I think it's a total waste of time by the time I come to um, want to use this it'll be out of date and replaced by something else <laughs> and I think we've kind of got a bit of a um, we've got a bit of a habit of doing that in England in a way that sort of rather than saying you know um, there was there are certain enduring fundamental things that we need to teach I am not a believer in the idea that you can find it all out on the web so you don't need to teach anything 
there are definitely fundamental things that we need to teach. But we do need to bring more to the fore the, um, the, the idea that people have to be able to deal with some of the things that in the in modern life are very much um they're very much part and parcel of modern life like information isn't a problem it's knowing which information is true which yeah. is reliable so you know where do we teach that skill you know where do we teach that interpretation of information which is obviously something everybody, all of us are dealing with that every day in our in our real lives and, yeah. and you know like the conversation that was going on around should we be teaching i think this came out in the times last week about parents would really like it came out from policy first originally um parents would really like more life skills like how to manage your mortgage well I don't disagree with that, but I don't really see it as having life skills lessons. I think that within the maths curriculum, there's plenty of time to talk about how you manage a mortgage. But if we're not doing, we should be asking ourselves, why aren't we? Why aren't we, as part of maths, looking at some of the practical implications from that? And if we want to do maths up to 18, then, you know, the maths which is connected with our real life is going to have to be a fundamental part of it. So I think I think we're educating for the future, not for the now. And and everybody always says, you know, that, you know, we've got a sort of Victorian education system and there's something in that we do. But I don't think the answer is something radical like, you know, people don't go to school anymore, but they all just plug into into a laptop or a phone, because actually I think discourse is the way we learned. So actually, the whole kind of question of being able to talk about it with people and um, try out your ideas on people is is both sociable, which we all like as as human beings. Um, but it's also really fundamental to how we learn. So so I'm, I'm always I suppose I think I want to navigate by what kind of people do we want to create rather than should we use this thing rather than that thing? Because yeah. um, because when, whenever you go for the second, you kind of find yourself redundant fairly fast. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Deborah, thank you very much for your time and, and your insight into high performance learning and in particular um, you, where it's come from uh, and what um, what it could look like uh, in a fabulous classroom and that the pictures you've painted about um, your own experience and what you've observed. Uh, I think it's been uh, absolutely fascinating. So thank you. Thank you, Deborah. It's, um, it's a real pleasure to be able to talk to you, but also, also more that, you know, I feel um, schools like your schools in Albany Trust, they're, um, they are the schools who are living this in practice and, and actually showing that it can be the, the single school improvement methodology. And, and it's just great to see. And you said you need to be brave heads to do it. And um, you're two of the bravest. So I thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, Andrew, I th thought that was, that was fascinating. Um, I thought Deborah, I mean, she, she speaks uh, brilliantly, doesn't she, about education and uh, really took us into into the classroom, um, her own experience um, when she was at school, but also how how teachers can can really kind of reflect on um, using high performance learning, but but also just just how to teach really well. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was um, it's quite heartening to hear Deborah talk about her schooling and how you know she was told that you're number twelfth in you know in the class, and how almost mm. that's that was the start of putting a ceiling on on children's learning, mm. individuals' learning, wasn't it? 
And, you know, to hear how HPL um, actually, you know, came about and how she developed it purely from, you know, that um, that thirst of wanting to know how do children learn. Mm. Um, I thought that was, you know, I, d- I didn't know that before uh, before today. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's lovely. And it's it clearly... Um, you know, it would if it was in place when she was in school, it would have changed her, you know, her whole experience. Mm. Um, and that's why we do it, isn't it, to change the experiences of those children in front of us now? Yeah. Yeah, and it, yeah, just just incredibly personal, wasn't it? And um, I, as you say, I think a lot of teachers go into teaching, and they often talk about the inspiration um, of a great teacher, or, or conversely, I know some colleagues that I've worked with are talking about, you know where I'm going to go here, yeah. uh, they, you know, they, they talk about actually they didn't have a good education and yeah. they, they want to do something better for future generations. Yeah, and it was also good to hear about, um, you know, how can we support um, teachers um, you know, with you know expertise in subjects, and it it was great just to hear you know to hear us say, you know, just admit it, you know, and let's find out together, mm. um, you know, for the children um, to learn with you, mm. um, and to see how you then go about finding um, things out that you didn't know, um, and it's almost giving teachers um, that green flag, you know, in a high performing learning classroom. Um, it's okay not to know, um, but you go and find out, you know, it, it's that, don't just leave it there. And I thought she's also got a, a brilliant perspective, um, which is is sort of different from uh, most of the people perhaps that we talk to in, in education, that international perspective. Yeah, yeah. Um, so much work with international schools, as we mentioned, mm. um, and just how that, um, I suppose, informs her her views about what is perhaps good and strong and perhaps what could be much better uh, in the English sector. Yeah. And, it, you know, schools are beginning to talk more, you know, um, about sustainability um, and, you know, children's, you know, children's rights, you know, with rights respecting schools. Many schools that I know are, you know, beginning to uh, do, you know, the work around that. Um, but I think, you know, in... You know, in the UK, it's it's very early days with that. Um, you know, it's it, it's quite fascinating to hear that the international schools, it's at the core of what they do, isn't mm. it? Um, you know, making the future um, better. Um, and linking that back to our, you know, our induction process for staff, you know, induction and, you know, and the, the whole whakapapa, you know, that... We don't forget about our ancestors. It's our time in the sun now, but we want to leave, you know, our, where we are now in a, you know, our school, our, you know, and also our students in a better place in the future. Mm. And I think it's applying that, um, you know, to to our students as well, you know, with our with our high performance learning um, in both in both schools. So, so, so we introduced HPL uh, to, to our schools about. Two, three, years, three, four three years year, ago. About three, four years ago, yeah. Um, yeah. So, just in terms of the impact that's that's had, what what have you seen at CNR? Uh, it, it's a confidence, uh, confidence in in pupils absolutely has changed uh, massively over the past you know, couple of years. Um, uh, you know, from them not feeling that um, you know they they had a voice. Mm. Um, 
you know, but I know as a school, we've, you know, we've tried, given them lots of opportunities to share their thoughts and their feelings, but they didn't know how. They just didn't know how. And what HPL has, has provided us, you know, I, I would say the main thing, to be honest with Peter, is that um, they know they have the skills now, uh, or they're developing the skills now, um, of, you know, how to present themselves, um, you know, to be risk takers, that it's okay um, you know, to get things wrong and to have a go and that belief you know because for many years you know we we you know we we taught our children you know you um you know you're not there yet um but that only took it so far but what we're doing now is actually giving them the skills and behaviors you know um how you know how to how to get better what they need to do how to talk to each other um how to engage how to collaborate um it, yeah it really has made a difference um, and continues to do so um as the children from from as you know, young as reception you know you can the children are using the words collaborate um and again that goes back to you know using the correct vocabulary which hpl very much you know stipulates that we do we don't you know um, dampen down you know or change the word in and you hear children you know we're collaborating um which you know puts a, a big smile on on uh, on our faces oh yeah, it's fantastic yeah. isn't it and uh, yeah we're, so we, we, we talked to deborah didn't we uh, just after we stopped recording um just about one of the students who, who left here um a couple of years ago now and uh, there's, there's a video actually of him uh, on our school website uh, just talking about the impact HPL has had on him, and he certainly wouldn't have characterised himself, I don't think, as a high performance learner uh, for most of his school career. Um, but having been taught explicitly um, you know, these skills and these behaviours that high performing learners uh, do demonstrate, he knew he understood mm. um, what he needed to do, and he also recognised that he applied it to his favourite. Well, I want to say hobby, but I think for him it's a bit deeper than that. Um, but uh, boxing, he was, he was a fantastic boxer, is a fantastic boxer, uh, really committed to that and used a lot of um, that kind of thinking uh, and that um, uh, those, kind of, those behaviours that Deborah spoke about in his boxing. He recognised that and then was, was, you know, when, when teachers were talking in the same way as his boxing coach realised that with that same effort mm-hmm. and that application... Um, that he could become a high-performing learner in English and maths and all of his other subjects, uh, and it was a real breakthrough moment, I think, for him when he when he, when he did recognise that. And hearing him talk about it is is fantastic and, and transformational. And we've got uh, a number of stories like that, but uh, that's that's a great example yeah. um, that, that, that we saw here. Well, Linda, thanks very much for arranging uh, the meeting with Deborah. It's always a pleasure to to um, uh, speak with her, but I know she's incredibly busy, um, and uh, I think it's absolutely fascinating getting that insight from her. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Linda. Thank you.